Pastor Huff was uh, speaking last week, and I sit over there, and uh, Renee knew I was in trouble because I flipped the page over off of my notes page, and I just started scribbling, and I had like an 18-point sermon by the time Huff wrapped up, and I was all excited. I was like, we're going to roll with that sermon today, and then Wednesday, I was like, nope, not going to do that one. I'm like, what in the world? Let's go, let's go. So, but this morning, he's like, we'll take the revival outside. I'm like, that's fine. We're going to take some Jesus outside. We're going to beat up on some people. We're going to make them, yeah, get them right. And I get on fire. Got the electricity, the buzzer, the button, everything. So I'm ready this morning. I hope you guys are too. So um, we are going to start in the book of Romans this morning. Romans chapter 1, verses 16. If you could stand with me. This is our springboard verse this morning. It is loaded in the app for all your verses. Awesome. Thank you. Loaded in the app. Appreciate that, sir. <laughs> all right. Romans 1, 16. Here we go. For I am not ashamed of the gospel... For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. Let us pray. God, thank you, Lord, so much for being able to come into your house today or to watch this message today. This is, message is, is not about me. It's all about you and how we should live our lives, how we should walk through our lives, and how we should walk with it and just continue to grow closer to you every day. So I pray for everyone's heart here today that them be open uh, to this message, that we truly reflect upon your word and that we do indeed grow closer to you. It's in your son's precious name that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So the, the title of today's message is Three Things, Three Things That You Should Not Be Ashamed Of. Three Things You Should Not Be Ashamed Of. Right? And so, you know, we've all done things in our lives that we are ashamed of. No matter how young or how old we are, there are things in our life that we're ashamed of. Um, you know, ashamed is simply embarrassed or guilty because of one's actions, characteristics, or associations. All right, so how many people, eh, you don't have to raise your hands. It's one of those things I had a lot of, I wish I had multiple eyes so that I could see everyone's reaction because when I ask this question, I'll know who's guilty or not, right? But whoever's been in a place and they see someone they recognize, but they don't really want to talk to them right now, and they say, oh, I hope they don't see me. They just keep walking, right? Yeah, that's a common one. Yeah, yeah, I can see, yeah. Oh, I don't want to talk to them right now, right? You know, so you think back, it's like, oh, we should have said hey to them. We should, you know, we could have, you know, enlightened them that day, you know, lifted their spirits a little bit. We're like, ah, oh, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. All right, how about this one? I've never done this one, but pretty much because I'm not in the grocery store, but I've, I've, I can imagine this one. Who's ever dropped a piece of produce and then picked it back up and put it on the shelf and hope nobody's seen them? <laughs> right? So that there's those things, right, that, that we hope that, uh, that, that nobody sees. Right, and we don't want to be ashamed about. Renee actually even shared one with me last night that it got me cracked up really good. You can look this one up on the news. But um, apparently this guy was, um, he was uh, walking down the street. Actually, there's this pizza owner in California. I think it was appropriately or, or oddly named Steve's Pizza, a really fancy Italian place, um, Steve's Pizza. But he, he um, got to work one morning and somebody, the glass had been busted out of his three-pane store front window. And uh, someone had taken a, a sewer grate and threw it through the window and busted the window. And, um, but the reason this was back in the news was that a person, the guilty party, wrote this letter to him. It says, uh, sorry for smashing your window. I was hammered last night 
And my friend sent me this article this morning. I was unaware of my actions until now. I would have come forward sooner if I had known. I know I'm in no position to ask a favor, but I hope that we can take the police out of this. This is not the man I am trying to be, and I hope you know that I'm sorry and how much shame I feel. Here's $2,000 to replace your window. That's cool. And then he, then he said, P.S., there was two grand in here. If, somebody, if you don't have two grand, somebody took something off the top or something like that, right? But this guy had shame for his actions in what he does. We all experience shame in our lives. But today is not about the shameful things we have done. It is about three things we should not be shameful of. And the first thing is that we should not be ashamed of our testimony. Pastor Huff ended with this last week. And it has stuck with me, stuck with me all week. And that's kind of what shifted the message today to this topic. But he asked us to repeat last week, my testimony of how God has worked in my life is important and needs to be shared over and over in my mind. See, I don't have a, I personally don't have a, how do you say this, the more spiritually wow testimony in my life i don't i've i've never been addicted to anything i've never had an alcohol problem those are the common stories the common testimonies that you hear but my testimony is one that is yes i've made mistakes yes i could have done this better yes i could have studied this more yes i could have should have went left instead of right but it's these gradual 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 steps that's got me to where i have been today but I don't share my testimony a lot. Why? Because I don't think it's worth anything. So last week's challenge was a good one for me. Right? And I want to make sure that there's no one else in my boat today. And if you're not in my boat, at least you still realize and we reemphasize that your testimony is nothing to be ashamed of. Your testimony can be very powerful. Let's turn to Acts chapter 4, verse 33. Acts chapter 4, verse 33. Right, it reads here. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. You will see people using their testimony throughout Scripture, right? And this one here in the book of Acts talks about all the apostles giving it. In John chapter 4, verse 39... John chapter 4, verse 39, it says, Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. This is the woman at the well. He told me all that I ever did. All that I ever did. Would those people have believed or even known who Jesus was in that town if she had not told them? The answer is no. She was the reason, right, that so many of them came to believe in Jesus in that town. And then Romans 10, 17 says this. It says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. How will people come to know Christ if they don't hear it, the message? And it might be we are the only ones they hear it from, right? So our testimony is very powerful. All right, so let's flip over to um, one of the great examples of a testimony in Acts chapter 26. And we're not going to read through the whole thing, but do flip with me to Acts chapter 26 because I want to show you three components of a testimony. And I'll go ahead and tell you now, there's not a test today, but I am going to leave you with a sheet of paper. 
as you walk out today. And it's going to be, it's going to have three big blocks, okay, you, as, as you leave. And that's going to be today and your homework to write out your testimony. Some of you may have, some of you may have not. Um, but we're going to go through these three steps here as we look at Paul. So in chapter 26, Paul is before King Agrippa. And he is sharing his testimony with the king. And I want to highlight three things. So you can kind of block these in your Bible or, or kind of write them out. But um, three parts of a testimony of what was life like before he knew Christ? What was life like before you knew Christ? That's the first piece of your testimony, before. So let's look at Paul. Paul in verse, chapter 26, verse 4 through 8. He tells about what his life was like. Before he met Christ, my manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And he goes on to say additional things. But what was life like before you met Christ? Okay? And then the second part is how he met Christ. How did you meet Christ? How were you introduced to Christ? What was your experience like with Christ? Paul tells us his in chapter 26, verses 12 through 18. He tells of his uh, Damascus Road experience, right? His journey, seeing the great light, blinded, right, for three days. And then the third part of the testimony is how has your life been since you met Christ, right? Before? When met him and after, right? It's not complicated, but it's three separate phases. So there's a couple of questions that, that you kind of ask. So in the before phase, in the before phase, I'm going back a little bit here, sorry, but in the before you trusted Christ, answer some of these questions. What were you searching for? What was important to you? What was your chief problems? What were your emotions? How did you try to fulfill those feelings of loneliness and, and wanting to be part of something bigger? How did you deal with death? How did you deal with insecurity before you met Christ? And then again, the second part, how you came to salvation in Christ. What were the events? What were the circumstances of how you met Christ? What were the steps that brought you to trusting Christ? Where were you? I would say mine was in Indiana in 2002, right? At a college in Evansville, Indiana. It was when I said I had to make changes in my life and Christ was the only one that could help me make them. And it was at that same university a year later where my future wife-to-be was baptized. Why Evansville, Indiana is in my past, present, or future? I have no idea, but that's where God spoke to me. And that was where things had to change. That was my how I came to salvation in Christ. Even though I had grown up in the church, right? And that's where I think that my testimony can relate to a lot of people that have grown up in the church. And you can grow up in the church and you can memorize the verses. But is that cliche, it's about relationship? Right? It is. When did you come to know and realize that you needed a relationship and it could only come through Jesus Christ? And then how has your life been since you made that decision? What difference has been made? How has forgiveness impacted your life? How has forgiveness made your relationships better? Have your thoughts, attitudes, emotions changed since Christ came into your life? 
For me, my biggest thing was it's not about me. That was my biggest thing. That's not a revolutionary concept or anything, but that was my biggest thing when I came to Christ was it's not about me. It's about others. That's my biggest thing. So a word of caution when you put together your testimony. In case you don't know this, Christians can scare people. Okay? Christians can scare people. Now I want you to step out of the pew. Okay? Go back to before you knew Christ. Put it in your mind that you know nothing. Step out of here before I say this. Get in your mind that you don't know anything about Christ. You don't know about God. You don't know who He is. Get there in your mind, okay? I know it's hard to wipe out. You shouldn't ever wipe it out. But I'm asking you as a challenge. Wipe it out for this exercise. If someone came up to you and said this, what would you think? Man, one day I was lost, but I heard the gospel message. Whew, my life was full of sin. I repented. I was born again, and I was saved. What would you think? Does that do anything for you? Sometimes those are the things we take for granted because we have been in the church and we understand the importance of these things. But wouldn't this be better? Man. I'm just lost. I don't feel like there's a purpose in my life. I don't have a hope for anything. But I heard that this message that God has is just full of hope for me. I was missing the mark and I was falling short of what he wanted and I decided to turn away from just the bad stuff I'd been doing. And I realized that I was given a new life and my eyes were open. And God rescued me and gave me a new hope for my life. Which one would you relate to? So as you think about your testimony and you write your testimony and you're writing this in anticipation that you will share it with other people, right? But think about the words that you can use, right, that won't scare people, okay? So you cannot be ashamed of your testimony. You cannot be ashamed of your testimony. Someone needs to hear it. Don't know who that is, but God knows. Someone needs to hear your testimony, all right, number two, might sound obvious in church, but I'm reiterating it. You cannot be ashamed of your eternal Savior. You cannot be ashamed of Him. So, so Kevin, why are we talking about being ashamed and everything on, on Palm Sunday? I don't get it. We're going to connect a few dots. Right here on the, we're coming up on the most important holiday of the church. I saw on a billboard going up here, Christmas was the promise, Easter was the proof. I like that. That's good. All right? But let's turn to Matthew 21 now. Let's read through this Palm Sunday passage. And I want to point out why we're here. So, Matthew chapter 21, 1 through 11. Matthew chapter 21, 1 through 11. All right. The triumphal entry. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethage to the Mount of Olives, 
Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on the cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their, spread their cloaks on the road, excuse me, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went, with, went before him and that have followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The people were eager and hungry for a savior. When you're in trouble, who doesn't want a savior? Everybody wants to be saved. They want to be well off. People want a savior. The problem with this this is they were searching for and thought they had found what? The wrong kind of savior. Right? They wanted, actually, I'm going to go back. I wore this tie today. March Madness. Renee reminded me that this is actually, actually, I think I told her this, this is from high school. I was telling Bobby this morning, this ties from high school, right? You have to, on game day, you have to look nice, right? You have to wear this. I'm like, wow, I still got it. It's in pretty good shape. Must not have played too many basketball games, <laughs> right? But I wear this about once a year in March. But NCAA tournament, everybody, our household, we're doing some brackets, right? Having some fun. But I still remember uh, when Steph Curry had his incredible season back in 2008 in the NCAA tournament. He averaged like 32 points a game, three steals. It was outrageous. People looked to him, what? To be the hero of the game, to save the game. And even in the NBA today, he just won the three-point contest, but they were looking for him. He was the guy in that tournament that you knew would get the last shot. He was the savior of that game. He's the guy that everyone looked to. And we have different games in our lives today that we try to play. And even the NCAA tournament, I mentioned this Wednesday night, was they have the road to glory, is, is what CBS kind of calls the NCAA tournament, the road to glory. And we shared this, uh, the commercial, the Allstate commercial, and if you've seen it, Charles Barkley's driving to, driving to town, and it shows the city of Annapolis. And it says, here we are, boys, in Indianapolis. Right? But where are they playing the basketball tournament? Indianapolis. Right? Not Maryland, right? So, but really funny commercial. They were on the wrong road, right? Just like the people that were waving the palm branches here on Palm Sunday, they were following the wrong track. They had the wrong interpretation of what our Savior would be, right? They wanted someone to save them from the Roman rule, the Roman oppression that they were feeling. They wanted someone to come and be their new king and make their lives better, but they were short-sighted, right? They were focused on the present. They were not focused on the eternal. Sounds like us a little bit. It sounds like the disciples also. Turn with me a few pages over in Matthew. 
to Matthew 26, 56. Matthew 26, 56 says, But all this had taken place that the scriptures and the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left and fled him. It didn't say the inner circle stayed. It didn't say Peter stayed. It says what? All of them had left him. They were too ashamed of their Savior. Just a few, and then we get next, uh, verse 69. Peter denies Jesus, right? Common passage. We get this. We've read it several times, right? Three times Peter denies him. And then in verse 75 it says, And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. He denied who Savior really was. Mark chapter 8 even said it was coming. Jesus told Peter specifically this would happen. It's in Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 38. I'm going to read verse 38 now. So Mark chapter 8, 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes into the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You get the impact of that? If we are shameful of our Savior, he says that he will be ashamed of us. That's weighty. That's powerful. But Kevin, I'm not ashamed of him. Here's a quiz. Am I ashamed to place a Bible on my desk at work? Am I ashamed to pray with a brother or sister in public? Am I ashamed to speak out on issues that matter to Jesus? Am I ashamed to ever mention Jesus in a post on social media? Am I ashamed to thank God when I announce the birth of my child? Am I ashamed to select Christian and religious views on my Facebook profile? Am I ashamed to mention the name Jesus when I am with the people who aren't Christian? Am I ashamed to thank God for my meal when people who aren't Christians are present? Am I ashamed to communicate my disapproval when a colleague or friend blasphemies the name of Jesus? Am I ashamed to display of my faith in a way that would be visible to guests when they enter my home? Am I ashamed to explain that the reason for my goodness, not swearing, honesty, is not because I am nice, but because I love Jesus? I had to answer yes to a few of these questions this week. Chances are you answered yes to a couple of these questions. But we should not and cannot be ashamed of our Savior. So I've got my own action items from this section of the sermon this week that I have to do better. Jesus, the Jews got it wrong, the disciples got it wrong, and a lot of times we also get it wrong but 
I like that little word. There's a couple things that we have in our favor as we look at the New Testament that we just read out of and today. Anybody ever heard the expression of Monday morning quarterback? Heard that one, right? So when all the announcers and stuff, they, they go through the games and say, you know, this person did it wrong, this person did it, did it right. Well, they should have done this instead of this, right? Because they've got what? The luxury of looking at the whole game, seeing how it played out, seeing how people responded. We get some of that. After 2,000 years of history, we see the promises in the Old Testament. We see Christ fulfilling them in the New Testament. We have all these commentaries, these study notes. We have all of these testimonies of people that's in our favor. There's a very small verse that is very powerful for me, and I hope you feel the same, but look at Luke chapter 24, verse 45. Luke 24, verses 40, verse 45. And this is when Jesus appears to his disciples after the resurrection. It says, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Oftentimes I read it. I'm like, why don't they just get it? Why don't the disciples get it? Jesus is right there with them. Why don't they get it? Jesus says here, that he now opened their minds and they understood. We have the luxury of God's word, seeing it in its entirety. I have the luxury of when I study, I can read commentary after commentary after commentary. I can ask people what they think about the scripture, about this passage. Right? But Christ opened their minds. And that should be our prayer anytime that we open the scriptures, is that our hearts are opened as well, and so that we can see God's glory. I always think it's amazing, right? Talk about shame, the things that we have. Peter went from denial. All the disciples went to denial. They went from rabbits to lions. Just like that. Just like that. Think about it. They went from hiding, right? They saw Christ. Their testimony is way, way powerful up there. And they went to lions. Right? Trying to find some stuffed animals. But I just didn't capture it. Right? They went from a little rabbit. Not like a cute, cuddly rabbit. Like the rabbit that is running for his life because he's going to get devoured. Right? They went from that kind of rabbit, that mentality, to they went to standing before kings proclaiming Christ as the only way to heaven. And how did they do that? They did that through the encounter with Christ. We've spent the last 11 weeks studying the attributes of God. And there is nothing to be ashamed of in a God that is sovereign, always faithful, supremely wise, totally self-sufficient, immutable and unchanging, loving, full of mercy, grace, just, holy, truly glorious. There's nothing to be ashamed of there at all. So you cannot be ashamed of your eternal Savior. And the third thing you cannot be ashamed of, and this sounds odd, but you cannot be ashamed of Christ's victory. You cannot be ashamed of Christ's victory. 
Let's go back to Palm Sunday. You know, when I grew up in the church on Palm Sunday, we'd have these little 12-inch palm branches. Y'all might have had them in the past, right? Hand them out. Twelve. Anybody ever have those? Right? Palm Sunday. Little 12-inch palm branches. That ain't the real thing, y'all. Those palm branches in Bible times, those trees grew 80 foot tall. Some of them were a little shorter, a little wider. Some of them could grow 40 foot wide. Those palm branches could be anywhere from 6 feet to 15 foot long. Right? And those palm branches symbolized a lot. Symbolized goodness, well-being, grandeur, steadfastness. And most importantly, they represented victory. They represented victory, which is why they laid them in the road as Jesus entered. In 1 Kings 6.29, it says this. It says, around all the walls of the house uh, he carved, and this is King Solomon. um, He carved engraved engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers in the inner and outer rooms. The floor of the house he overlaid with gold in the inner and outer rooms. A sign of power and victory. They were also, palm branches were tokens of of joy and shared at many festivals. In Leviticus chapter 23, 40, chapter 23, 40, it says, And you shall take on the first day of the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. Signs of victory and celebration. And most importantly, we see palm branches in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. Revelation chapter 7, 9 through 12. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So there we go. Palm branches, again, all the way from the Old Testament to end times. Palm branches, palm branches. We live in an odd time right now. Everyone agree? There's this odd tension. There's this odd mixture. Right? We're walking and living around in our mortal bodies, and we live with this concept of sin. We get older, stuff starts aching. Right? There's just confusion everywhere. I did see a funny shirt yesterday. You know, we, we hear of the, the, the fun, the police movements. I saw a guy wear a shirt. It was a hob, Hobby Lobby Friday night. He had a shirt on that said, defund the media. I thought, that would be good. Right? Let's, let's defund the media. Just, just tell me the truth or just give me the facts and let me interpret the truth. I'm a pretty smart guy, but give me the facts so I know what the facts is. We live in a confusing time. And then you take that confusing time and you put it with this concept of humility, right? Put this with the concept of humility, because humility is an aspect of the Christian faith that we're all, all kind of talked about, and, and right or wrong, more wrong, more right, depending on the situation you use, we put Christ in this, yes, this nice, humble just gentleman, but granted, right after he walks into the temple, what'd he do, right? He was angry at how his father's house was treated, But you combine just this odd mixture of time and this humility concept and Christians have a hard time winning. 
Christians have a hard time winning. Like, what are you talking about? Christians have a hard time winning. We should want to win in all aspects of our lives. We're going through financial peace right now. We're going through five weeks of it. I want to win with my money so that I can give my money. (laughs) I want to live like no one else so that later I can live and give like no one else. That's the philosophy. In the Bible it says, remember the poor. Well, guess what? If nobody has money, who's going to take care of the poor? I don't want a bunch of money. I want enough money to support my family. And then, like Huff said, the challenge is to take care of people that don't have what they need. But if I don't make those decisions every day to win with my money, at the end of the day, I won't have any money. And I'll look at someone that's in need, and all I can do is say, I wish I could help you. Versus, I can help you. And that's just the first part. You need a meal, I got you covered. What else you need? Right? We have to win with those decisions every day. Think about the decisions you make. Even, even Huff, I heard her say this morning, is like, well, I could get that, but I've got other things I want to do with my money. Guess what? It is our money. God gave it to us, though. And the Bible tells us to be good stewards of our money. I was thinking about, I don't like to interpret right so far because it's not in the scripture, but think about this. In the scripture, you hear the disciples say that everyone was fed and taken care of, right, as they started their ministry because everyone rallied together the resources they gave to take care of everyone as they were starting out the ministry. Did anywhere in the scripture, this hurts me, this hurts me bad to say it. Do you hear anybody in the scripture, you say, Peter say, sorry, I can't help you, I need a new fishing net. Don't look at me. Do you hear in the scripture anywhere Paul say, I can't help you, I need a new top-of-the-line weaving kit to build my tents? You don't. You don't. So a lot of us think that winning is, yes, having the nicest this, having the nicest that, but winning with your money is being smart enough with your money to realize that you're supposed to be good stewards of it to help others. That's what winning with your money looks like. The other area that I feel that I am winning is marriage. Hopefully she agrees. But it is awesome to have a relationship with a woman that can finish your sentence. Sometimes. It's awesome to have a relationship um, with a woman that you can talk to her and not say a word. You shared that story. It's awesome to sit at the table with your family and a kid say something and you and your wife know the next sentence before they even get it out. It's awesome to have a wife that texts you throughout the day and asks you how you're doing, share things that she's going through so that you're on the same page. Being on the same page is wonderful. I should not be ashamed of that marriage because I am winning. 
People need to know that there are good marriages out there. Y'all are involved in several of them. But you should not be ashamed when you win at something in your life. Let's go to Proverbs 31. Flip with me to Proverbs 31. Right, Proverbs 31. Sorry, Brown, I threw this in there extra. Proverbs 31, 10 through, um, 10 through 13, it says, An excellent wife who can find, she is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. Right? You ever played those um, or tried that, you know, where you put your name in the Scripture? You know, for Christ so loved Kevin that he gave. You know, you personalize the Scripture. As I was kind of looking at, at marriage the other day, I heard, uh, I, I can't remember the preacher, but he said, why don't you read Proverbs 31? I think it goes both ways in marriage. How excellent, an excellent husband who can find. He is far more precious than jewels. The heart of his wife trusts in him, and she will have no lack of gain. He does her good and not harm all the days of his life. If you have a marriage where one spouse is looking after the other spouse, it's a wonderful thing. And it's a wonderful thing because that's how God designed it in Scripture. See, God tells us how to win with our money by being good stewards of it. He tells us how to win at marriage because of just all the different passages of describing marriage and how we should talk to each other, how we should support each other, how we should uplift each other, and how we should help each other in our lives. But you may say, Kevin, I've made too many mistakes in marriage. I've made too many mistakes in money. If that's what you're saying to me right now, you must not have heard the last couple weeks of Huff's message. Fear versus faith. Fear is a liar. That's in the past. Heard an Anthony O'Neill podcast. He said this. He says, if people keep reminding me of my past, they will be in my past. A little harsh, but think about it. If people keep reminding me of my past, they will be in my past. Another story for you. And remember this. God defines winning. God defines goodness. Right? We talked about God defining goodness. The other day, the, Renee took the kids to the books, uh, library, took them to the library. And the kids were telling them what we've been doing the last couple of weeks. And Joa shared that we had shoveled one of the neighbor's driveways in the yard and we had got caught. And the librarian said, what do you mean you got caught? We were trying to sneak out there early, shovel their driveway, and then get back, right? So they didn't know who shoveled their driveway. Because we don't really care to do it for credit or money. Even though the kids got some cookies, by the way. Because we got caught. Right? But the librarian said, that's a lot of work. Why, why would you do that for free? Right? You should get paid for that. I'm like, that's not what I'm trying to teach my kids. Right? But she had her definition of good. Right? 
And there's definitely nothing wrong with working hard, but that's not why we shoveled their driveway. She had in her mind what the definition of good was. And we have to remember that God has his definition of good. So those things in our lives, those things in our past, those bad decisions, those situations that we got ourselves into, not that God would call them good, but they had a purpose, right? They had a purpose for our lives. So, when I say you cannot be ashamed of Christ's victory, I want to make one more distinction here that it is not your victory that you stand in. It's not your victory that you stand in. It is Christ's victory that you stand in. Okay? And this goes back to the earned mentality of I earned my way to heaven. No, you don't earn your way to heaven. It's Christ's victory. And you get into those words, and I wanted to break it out here, but we're going to save it for another day of justification and sanctification and finally glorification. Right? God justifies us at one time with that blood of Christ and on the cross. Right? We are sanctified. That is where we are mostly pretty much walking all through. Once you accept Christ, we are becoming more and more like Him. We're learning how to handle money. We're learning how to handle situations. We're learning how to handle marriages. We're learning how to support people that need us by following God's plan in Scripture. So victory is found in Christ and is ours if we live by faith. There will be freedom from sin, from guilt, from shame, from, from death. And the Bible tells us how to win in every area. I said this before, and I'll probably say it a lot more, but Christians are the only ones who know where they came from, why they are here, and where they are going. You have two extremes of victory, the way that we try to say it. Two different extremes. The first extreme is Right, I've got the brand new car, I've got the best thing, and I'm walking around with my chest all puffed out. Right, That's victory. I'm doing well. Got it. It's all me. I'm victorious. I'm winning. Yes, I've got this thing of life all mastered. And then the other extreme is the world is going and losing their mind and I just want to go over here and curl up and sit in this little hole in the corner and just leave me alone and I'll be okay. That's the side that Renee's laughing. She tends to go toward that side. right? But there's two different extremes on how we view our life. Right? I'll share this quote here. Truly, Jesus won an extraordinary triumph over sin, death, evil, poverty, illness, demonic powers, and so much else at the cross. He defeated those things and the enemy who is behind them. From what he did for us, we're meant to receive those benefits. Our fate is not supposed to be living in a beaten down state constantly. Yes, life has its troubles, but in Jesus Christ we can meet them or defeat, meet them and defeat them or we can learn to live with the things that can't be changed in patience and endurance. I can't be ashamed of winning. If I'm ashamed of winning with my money, how can I teach someone else? If I'm ashamed of my marriage and don't tell other couples on what we do and 
our best practices so they can improve their marriage, who will tell them? And if I'm ashamed of my Savior, who will tell them? Final verse as we wrapped up. Turn to John chapter, 1 John 5, chapter 1 through 5. Excuse me, verses 1 through 5. 1 John 5, verses 1 through 5. And this, this passage of verses has everything that we've talked about wrapped up. You could almost flip this sermon upside down and start with this passage. But overcoming the world. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. This is your testimony. How are you living your life? How has God changed your life? How can people see God in your life? This is your testimony. And His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. We cannot be ashamed in the victory of Christ. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And that is our Christ, the eternal Savior of the world. We cannot be ashamed of Him. So that's three things that you cannot be ashamed of. We're getting ready to go through... Um, the season of the Holy Week. And this week represents it all, in my opinion. You, you have the victorious celebration. You have miracles. You have all these aspects in Jesus' ministry this week. But then you have the loneliness and the defeat and just Jesus solely there by Himself, totally deserted. Everyone's ashamed of Him, left Him. You have the cross. And then most importantly, you have the resurrection. All jammed into one week. So as we go through this week, that's the challenge. And that's why I'm doing this message here is because this is a great opportunity to share your testimony with others this week. So let's stand.